from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This is the Anxiety Bites podcast, and I am your host, Jen Kirkman. Welcome to another episode of Anxiety Bites. I'm your host, Jen Kirkman. I'm so excited about our guest today, Dr. Nina Vossen. She is so brilliant and so enthusiastic and so kind. And it was just wonderful talking to her. And and she addresses things that we haven't really talked about on the podcast before, which is what does the future bring for treatment of anxiety and, and other mental health issues? Where where are we falling short and and where are the spaces that need to be filled? And what I love about my conversation with Dr. Boston is there are so many solutions that she gives and the science to back it up. And y'all are going to get something for free. So don't you fast forward this little intro. I'm going to give it to you right now. And we'll get into, you'll hear in the episode 
more about what it is that Dr. Vossen works on, but she is the chief medical officer of a company called Real. And again, you're about to get something free, so keep listening. It's a mental health care company that's building a new therapy model through a monthly membership. Real provides care to members that they're able to access anonymously on their own terms at a price that is more affordable than other therapeutic approaches. Through modernized therapist-designed programs, they're improving the quality of mental health care and making it accessible to more people, especially the nearly 93% of people that are left out of the current traditional one-to-one therapy system. So right now, there is a code. You will get a free month of membership on a monthly membership offering valid through May 31st. Okay, so you've got a month. The steps to redeem it are go to join-real.com, select join now at the top, select the monthly option and proceed to their member info at the paywall where it asks you to input your credit card. There will be a selection for a coupon code promo and you will enter Anxiety Bites. Click and complete, and now you have one month of a free monthly membership to Real, and you can download the app to continue member onboarding and ultimately picking a pathway to get started. And so you may ask, well, what is this Real? What are you talking about? You'll see when you go to the website, but basically what Dr. Vossen does is she leads something at Stanford University called Brainstorm. And it's a lab. So the Stanford Lab for Mental Health Innovation, otherwise known as Brainstorm, focuses on trying to solve the mental health crisis through entrepreneurship, right? So basically, there's a really depressing statistic that over the course of a lifetime, 50% of Americans will have a diagnosable mental health disorder. However, if we optimized all the therapists in the United States, we'd only have enough therapists to treat 7% of the American population, again, despite the fact that 50% of Americans will have a diagnosable mental health disorder. So sometimes people need solutions. And what Nina's student, one of her students from her brainstorm lab did was that that's what they do at the the, uh, Stanford brainstorm lab is they come up with ways that Young people can become entrepreneurs in ways that help people with mental health. So one of her former students is now the CEO and founder of Real, which is one solution to mental health. And what Dr. Vossen works on with a lot of online companies like Pinterest or TikTok is something known as microtherapeutics, which is a toolkit of exercises that are based in cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, translated into two or three minute things that you can do online for free and actually feel better in just a few minutes. It's it's a compassionate experience that is the opposite of when you log onto a website and something pops up and tries to sell you something or you see a negative comment. It's literally the opposite. It's it's information that kind of just comes to you and it gives you things you can do right in that moment. Because as I learned from Dr. Vossen, the average person who suddenly feels a symptom of anxiety or any kind of mental health issue, it takes that person 11 years before they decide to set foot into a therapist's office. So imagine, you know, and that was my story as well as Dr. Vossen's stories. It took almost a decade to go get help. And so imagine if in that time, 
that, you know, imagine if in those 10 years you had little tools along the way to help you in the moment with your symptoms, it would certainly alleviate all of the things we do that are, you know, not great choices to alleviate our anxiety, right? Overeating, drugs, alcohol, maybe even just, you know, taking our anger out on other people, sleeping all day, whatever it is, just maladaptive behaviors that, you know, we do because we're self-soothing, we're self-medicating. We don't know how to fix this. And, uh, you know, imagine doing things that help here and there on the way to your journey to finally walk in the door of a therapist office. And so I just found this conversation today so fascinating. I learned so much that although it seems like everybody is having mental health issues and it seems overwhelming, how are we going to get everyone this help? It is possible. And I love the idea that people are going to college and learning about ways to become an entrepreneur, not so they can sell us more lotions and and leggings, but so that they can find a way that that uh, mental health solutions can be integrated into our, you know, we're already online life. So again, I hope you will sign up for the free offer for a month of Real. And again, all of that will be in the show notes. So you can just click there and get on it. So again, today I talked to Dr. Boston about the fact that she is someone that had anxiety and still has anxiety and depression as she still is this, you know, brilliant doctor. It happens to the best of us. And we talk a little bit about, you know, our COVID habits and what she's doing to make changes. She explains the biopsychosocial model. That is how we diagnose and treat anxiety. And she just has a lot of great facts about what actually helps alleviate our anxiety. And again, there's no magic pill. And you're going to hear a lot of the same things that you've heard in other episodes about mindfulness and sleep and exercises because that stuff works. But what I love that Dr. Vossen does, she'll actually write things like that on a prescription pad. <laughs> anyway, let me just let me just start the episode. You don't need to hear me describe what we talked about. Let's just go there now. Well, let me, let me, of course, brief you on, again, who I'm chatting with. Dr. Nina Vossen is the chief medical officer of Real, a mental health care company building a new therapy model. Outside of her work at Real, she is a psychiatrist and a professor at Stanford, where she is the founder and executive director of Brainstorm, the Stanford Lab for Mental Health Innovation. She has served as a healthcare advisor to the United Nations, the World Health Organization, and the Obama and Biden presidential campaigns. Dr. Vossen earned an A.B. in government from Harvard College, graduating as one of Glamour Magazine's top 10 college women, M.D. from Harvard Medical School, M.B.A. from Stanford Graduate School of Business, and completed psychiatry residency at the Stanford School of Medicine, where she was chief resident. Oh, my God. Ah, I mean, I think she's pretty qualified to tell us what to do. Me, on the other hand, I got a Bachelor of Arts in Modern Dance. So, so don't take don't take my word on anything. Just just let's just listen to Dr. Vossen, okay? Dr. Vossen, thank you for doing the show. And you know, everyone just heard in the intro your credentials and how um, acclaimed and brilliant you are. But you're still a human. And I would love to hear your 
experience with anxiety, past and present? You know, how did it manifest in your life? How did you cope? What what does it look like on the day to day now? First of all, thank you, Jen, so much for having me. And and let me take a step back. Thank you for having this podcast. Thank you for talking about mental health with so many people. It's incredibly, you know, important. And I just really appreciate the platform that that you created here. Oh, thanks. Uh, it is the joy of my life. I could do this all day. So it's really easy to do because I love it. I love that. I absolutely love that. And to answer your question, so actually on my LinkedIn, the very first thing that I share before any credential, before any title is um, that is my now 20 plus history with both anxiety and depression. And uh, going back, I think starting in as a teenager, I had pretty bad social anxiety, as well as general anxiety, both kind of emotional and physical manifestations of that. And just to give you some examples, um, I, I was a math nerd in growing up. And what, one of the things I remember is before any math competition, I would get like nausea, upset stomach, have to go to the bathroom multiple times in the morning. We, we'd go to like other other schools and like I'd go to their, their bathrooms like, for like 20 minutes before the competitions would start. Had no idea what that meant. Oh, it took like 10 years to finally figure out, you know, why that was always happening and that this was a pattern. And, you know, sweaty palms, those were sort of the physical manifestations I would get pretty regularly before before things like that, high stakes sorts of things in particular. And then in terms of social anxiety, you know, um, getting really, really nervous um, before uh, b- before kind of any type of social event, but moreover, you know, worrying that people were judging me and um, a- anything that I would say, uh, you'd be thinking so much about how are people going to, you know, per- perceive what, what that is that I'm saying. And uh, that, so that, that was sort of the second thing. And I think, you know, as a teenager, those were the things that definitely manifested. As time has gone on, um, luckily, I think that both of those have certainly gotten better. However, I do still struggle with anxiety today, um, mm. to, you know, 20 years later. And I think di- different manifestations of it, um, it shows up uh, in, in, certainly in, in various forms. And one of the things I think is really important to understand about anxiety is that one, it's honest spectrum, you know, from zero to a hundred, if you will. And throughout our lifetimes that, that will change. And even in what I'm explaining, like the flavor of anxiety can change for someone. And as different, you know, life stressors come and go, um, things get better and worse. And so, um, you know, for me, I think that I've been in treatment now for, I guess, probably about 10 years, um, Mm. meaning both medications and various forms of therapy, as well as uh, some of the things I hope we talk about today, um, you know, doing things like um, gratitude, mindfulness, journaling, exercise, so so many, so many of the kind of things that we talk about now is lifestyle and wellness and well-being. And um, they've all, you know, I would say that every kind of, every type of treatment out there has definitely helped me a little in different ways. Um, And, uh, but, but nothing also has been like a quick fix or a cure. Um, Yeah. Then, then what, one, one more thing I'll share about that is that um, I think most recently, certainly, I, I didn't even, I think, appreciate the extent of my anxiety until COVID started. And I think a lot of people um, have had similar experiences where maybe their anxiety was kind of under the radar. And then with COVID, they, it, like, you know, 
oh, became an overwhelming thing, or it had been something that they dealt yeah. with for a long time and it reached absolute new heights where for some people it was crippling. They started to have panic attacks. Um, for me, I think what I realized was one, uh, really a, a, a lack of self-care. This is very, very common that doctors, while we tell our patients to do all these things for them, so for them we do not yeah. do it ourselves. And, and that was something that was really big for me. But in the, in the context of that, um, really, I think uh, having, when I was anxious, um, for me, what that meant was often turning to food, um, and, oh, yeah. and at times also also, also like having a couple extra glasses of wine, you know. Sure. And, and I think that both of those kind of overeating, over drinking um, are things that are you know very very common uh, sort of self you know self medicating, if you will, for anxiety. And, and so those are things I actually stopped drinking, um, and I'm now I'm actually right now learning how to deal with my anxiety and triggers such that I'm not having that extra cookie or, you know, calling mm. pizza delivery at 10 p.m. Um, but it's something I struggled with for a, for a long time. And I think now what I realize is I, it's hard, I'm starting to accept it, realize yeah. I will struggle with it and that's okay. And let me get the right tools so that I can um, make things a little bit better on a daily basis. And, and just relating to that really quick, just so people can hear how anxiety is so sneaky. Um, I've had generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, undiagnosed since I was probably eight, diagnosed at age 22. I'm 47 now. And it it moves around. It changes. I feel like some things I've completely mastered. And so what was interesting is because I had such a good handle on anxious feelings, panic attack symptoms, and even rumination, I didn't suffer that in the pandemic. However, I did start, oh, I'll just have a couple of drinks every night. Oh, I'll just order food at 10 at night when I should just go to bed. But I wasn't feeling anything I could identify. I didn't feel nerves. I didn't feel the onset of panic. I didn't even feel sadness. I felt nothing. And now I know that all those coping mechanisms were anxiety. And what, it doesn't actually frighten me. I'm just being verbose. But what is interesting to note is that unlike all the anxiety I had in my life, and I thought I was handling the pandemic so well because I wasn't panicking, is oh, I didn't even know how to identify it. It was so, it didn't have any symptoms, honestly. I just had the, the, um, the bad solutions, you know. And I think that's a little frightening. I guess it is frightening. <laughs> it is, you're absolutely right. It, it is frightening because especially when we're aware of certain things and we can tell our emotions have changed, you know, and we know what to look for when that goes away and there's nothing that you can sense. It's very frightening. And in this case, I think what you saw was a change in your behavior, but it was difficult to associate that behavior with anxiety because those same triggers that you had before weren't coming up. Right. Um, right. And so I think that exactly what you dealt with, Jen, is what I mean, men like you know, millions of people in our country and, and certainly around the world experience over the last few years with, you know, and we, we saw that we saw like average, you know, weight gain increased, the amount of substances that people have been consuming has increased. And so these are very, very common and the easiest accessible things that we know that kind of soothe us. Right. And mm -hmm. so um, inc incredibly, incredibly common. And I, I think that um, as we move forward, the more we can become aware of what are these things that we do and how do we cope um, that that will benefit, benefit all of us? Because exactly like you said, it's like, oh, I didn't realize that's what it was. This question just came to me. It may be less of a question than a comment. It's so hard because 
being a teenager, our hormones are going crazy. We're experiencing so many things for the first time. We don't have any life experience to draw. And of course, we're going to have anxiety. So it's really hard to tell what's situational, you know, what's I'm a teenager and what's, oh, I might have an anxiety disorder and this will probably continue into my 20s and 30s. Do you think it's more of the way, uh, like sort of what the teenager does to cope is what causes it to become an anxiety disorder or not? One, I think that's a great, it's a great question. One, because it's like, how do we know for ourselves what's normal and what's not? And, you know, I speak around, around the country to big groups of people, especially now a lot of employers will, you know, will talk to large companies and everything. And actually one of the most common questions I get, Jen, is, is kind of, I think one of the things you're referring to is how do I know if this is normal or something that's actually a disorder where I need to seek help? And so I think even as a teenager, uh, one big important way to distinguish that is how much is it affecting your life? In the mm. sense that if we think about anxiety, is it, you know, I get a little nervous before the SATs or, but you know, oh, there's a cute guy and my palms get sweaty, you know, as he's trying to talk to me. Uh, that still happens to me. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but um, you know, I think thinking about that versus I'm so anxious that I'm only sleeping three hours a night or, you know, I, I, my grades dropped, you know, I used to be a straight A student and now I'm getting C's because I can't focus, right? That type of a change where you're not taking care of yourself, like the goals you have in life for yourself, for sports, for relationships, for school, like those are all changing. That's, I think, the best way to see, are you able to cope and live the life you want to, or is this issue getting in the way? Um, so that's for the, the first part of that. The second part, what I'm hearing you saying is like, how do we know what, you know, why really is anxiety, why does anxiety occur? And mm -hmm. what are the things that happen in childhood that can lead to it being a bigger issue as an adult versus not? And what that I think gets us to is the biopsychosocial model of mental illness, in particular of anxiety. Um, I'll, I'll pause there. Is that something yeah. we should talk about? Yeah, biopsychosocial on my list. Well, Let's go there now, and then I want to get into your, um, you know, your academic laboratory and your, you know, concept of technology and entrepreneurship. But but let's get into biopsychosocial. So that's a new thing I'm hearing, and I know the concept is is not new, but um, I've heard you say it a lot in my research. And I would love for you to explain what do you mean when you say that, and and how does that how does how does that help you help people. Absolutely. So when we say biopsychosocial, what that refers to is the way that we think about why any mental health condition, whether that's anxiety, depression, trauma, obsessive compulsive disorder, why it occurs, why it manifests in the first place, as well as then actually it gives us a framework for how to then treat the, these conditions. So let me explain what that means. So when we say biopsychosocial, what that means is that the reason anxiety occurs is actually this combination of biological, psychological, and social factors. Biologically, that means like things like our genetics, right? Like if mom mm. or dad was anxious, there's a much higher likelihood that you're going to be anxious because this stuff gets passed on in the DNA. Mm -hmm. From the psychological perspective, that means how do you talk to yourself and cope with stressors? And, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, how, what, what's, what's your dialogue with yourself? That's the kind of psychological, what's your resilience-like component? I think the social component is actually one of the most fascinating. And when we say social, that's a mix of, I would say, two big things. One is historical. 
meaning what was your childhood like? You know, if we think about, for example, now all the kids who grew up throughout COVID, this will be a part of their life for, you know, for their entire life. And how will that manifest as, you know, as things continue? And so did you grow up in a household that was very supportive, encouraging? Did you grow up you know, in the midst of war or have immense trauma, were you bullied as a child? All of those very much significantly lead to what anxiety can look like, not only as a child, but also as an adult. And then secondly, we have environment. And so I think the biggest way to think about the environment is let's think about the last two years and how everyone's life has changed Mm. and where the environment that we're living in because of all these literally like, you know, changes to what our home looks like, what work looks like, what our relationships look like, all of that uh, increases what, you know, in this case, it increases anxiety. Um, And so all of those together actually help us conceptualize why anxiety occurs. Now, the last thing I'll add about that, I think that's really important and makes, is also what I think in a lot of ways, what makes mental health fascinating and frustrating maybe compared to some other areas of medicine Mm -hmm. is that in other areas of medicine, we have a blood test or, you know, you can get an x-ray or an MRI and you can really see exactly what's there. Or like you have a number telling you what level things are in terms of figuring out the severity of disease. The issue with mental health is that um, one, you know, we, we don't have that, but moreover, we don't really know right now how, like what percentage of my anxiety versus your anxiety is biological versus psychological versus social. We can get a full mm. history and kind of make some guesses like, oh, you know, my mom also has anxiety. So that certainly means there's probably, and my brother has anxieties. There's probably a family component. How big is that? We're not quite sure. Hopefully in the future, we'll start to have more information to get this, but right now we don't. Um, So I think really what we should take from this is recognizing, you know, it's not the the kind of old school ways that people thought about why someone has mental illness, nothing that was your fault. It's nothing that like, quote, someone did. Um, It is a very real biological uh, part, but and and also a a manifestation of our environment. My listeners have heard me say this a million times, but first time I went to get medication for depression was, uh, you know, early twenties. I I don't believe I suffer from depression too much anymore, but the doctor, you know, was very kind and normalized it. And in 15 minutes, just by looking at me, explained that I had a chemical imbalance. And I was so confused because I literally thought I was going to get a blood test or have electrodes put on my head. And I just didn't understand, like, how can you say chemical, but you didn't do anything, you know? And so I'm learning now that that's kind of like, uh, it's not a myth per se, because I know that chemicals are involved, but it, would you say that it was just sort of like they named it badly? I, I think, yes, it's a bad, bad marketing is, is I think yeah. what, I, what I would say that meant. And, and what that is, is so, you know, at the biological level, what we know is that, for example, with anxiety and depression, the level of the neurotransmitters, things like serotonin, dopamine, uh, norepinephrine, the levels that we have in our brain are different. And so you and I who have anxiety, who, who you know have also dealt with depression, we have different levels compared to someone who doesn't. And moreover, the medications, for example, SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, medications like um, sertraline, uh, fluoxetine, pro, you know, pro, Prozac, medications Prozac, like yeah. that, um, what they do is they block 
the, uh, the breakdown of the serotonin. So that leads to an increase of serotonin in our brain. Um, and, and that's what it's trying to do because maybe you and I either make less or we break it down quicker. And so the point of the medication is to increase the amount of that in our body. So technically, yes, at that level, there is a quote chemical imbalance, but I, I completely agree. Like it's not the right way to talk about it or think about it. And, um, there, there's a much more kind of maybe eloquent or, or kind and, and really educational way to explain that. So people don't feel like I have wrong chemicals in my body or brain, you know? I had a psychiatrist used to say, we're going to have to play scientist. And I found out for me, I do better with the um, drugs that are less the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, but better yeah. with the dopamine increasing, you know, um, SNRIs, I think they're called, right? Yeah, that's, that's yeah. exactly right. And, and yeah, and, and um, I think that that's, that's also something that I think can be frustrating. And, and I say this because I, I think that one, something that's been important to me is actually trying to educate folks so much about these medications and, you know, one thing that happens is for a lot of people, the first medication might not be the right medication. And, and it is a little bit of trial and error. And I can imagine going to a doctor and being like, we're going to experiment, what? But, but yeah. the reality is that, you know, that not only actually is the case for psychiatric medications, for a lot of other medications, it is the same thing. We are not sure, even like allergy medication, which allergy medication is going to work really well for you. We're, we're not exactly sure from the get-go. But that's why oftentimes we have to try a few and it is important to, you know, work with your doctor to, to see what's working, what's not working. When are the side effects so bad that they outweigh the positive effects? And one thing that's really hard about these medications is that you feel the negative side effects before you feel the positive. Um, and that right. makes it really frustrating at times, but it is really important to give it a try because, you know, I, I certainly seen both for myself as a patient, as well as for, you know, hundreds of, of, of my own patients, how medication can just give people's lives back to them. We'll be right back. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. So the biopsychosocial. Am I wrong in, in saying that it sounds like the social aspect is sort of a newer discovery or, or maybe not a newer discovery, but a newer, uh, has more gravitas, like people are taking it more seriously? I think that's absolutely right. People are now taking it more seriously and recognizing just how much and how complex it is. For example, only now I think we're recognizing how like early childhood traumas or as I said, you know, things like bullying can make a tremendous impact later on down the line in ways that we really didn't appreciate before. And so one, there's a lot of research now being done on, you know, things from the past that help us see how it links to things in our present, um, as well as then recognizing that, you know, as I said, it's, it's relationships, it's what work looks like, it's what family life looks like, it's in, in all, all these sorts of aspects of environment. So that, that's definitely, that's definitely becoming the bigger thing. What I, what I actually think is really exciting about that is mm -hmm. that it gives us so many more opportunities for intervention and rather for treatment. So, you know, it's not just the, when we think about biopsychosocial, you know, as I said, it's not just why disease occurs, but it's how then we can treat. So what that means is that, you know, we can treat with medication biologically, we can treat with therapy psychologically, but then when it comes to environment, there are so many different types of treatments that help from the environmental perspective. Everything from working on your relationships with your parents or with your spouse, exercise, mindfulness, meditation, journaling, gratitude, like so like dozens and dozens of things. And I find that really exciting. And I hope I find that that gives hope to people that it isn't just like, pills help, but it isn't just a pill that's the only answer. There are many, many others that help improve anxiety and moreover can build up a lifetime of resilience for you. Absolutely. Well, that brings me to your work. So you have an academic laboratory called Brainstorm and on the website, it says transforming mental health through technology and entrepreneurship, which then leads us to another project that you're involved with called Real, which I've mentioned in the intro. So I don't, I don't know. I, I'm just so fascinated by that. I was like, I've never had anybody. I've never like feel like you're the only person doing this. It's so exciting. How did you come up with mental health and entrepreneurship like hand in hand? Yeah, absolutely. I, it's been such a such a passion, really, almost for the past decade or so. And I would absolutely love to to share that. And let me start with you know, in mental health and in, in psychiatry, 
One of the things that we talk about, it's sort of been like a, a catchphrase for, for the field for, for years and years and years is meet people where they are. Yeah. And, you know, it's something that we say figuratively around, you know, whether you were just getting diagnosed or you're not sure if you want to take medication, you know, the way that you need to talk to people is seeing where they are right now and, and really approaching discussions that way. Now, right. if we think about that from the figurative perspective, that's what that means. If we think about from the very, lit, so what, what, just to take a step back, you know, as yeah. I think about how to solve mental health as a problem, right, how to make things better, two billion people around the world, first of all, have a diagnosable brain or behavioral health disorder. And I say diagnosable with, with that inflection, because uh-huh. what that means is that, you know, you meet X number of criteria for depression or for anxiety. But what that also means is that, let's say, you know, four out of eight you meet. What if you meet three out of eight, okay? Yeah. You might not be diagnosable, but you're still really anxious, right? And you would still absolutely benefit from treatment and you're still really struggling because of that. So, so I say that because, you know, I think when we talk about statistics, the official diagnosis is important, but it's also just important to think about life, right? And like the whole spectrum. Um, so, so when you have a problem that big, where it's billions of people around the world. Um, and and I, I think the other thing, you know, you mentioned your mom and sister having anxiety. When anyone has anxiety, it's not just the person themselves who struggles. It's their loved ones as well, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and so it's really, really something that goes much broader. So when you have a problem of that um, magnitude and also urgency, especially in the U.S. now, you know, drug overdoses are the number one leading cause of death for the last few years for Americans ages 18 to 45, right? Like it is killing our generation of people. Um, That is both crisis and, you know, and magnitude. So what are we going to do about it, right? And and that's it. So to to go back 10 years, when I was, you know, in in medical school and just getting into psychiatry, um, that's kind of what I was thinking about. And at that time, uh, it was the first time, you know, as as physicians, we treat one person at a time, every, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, one hour. That's that's kind of what the traditional medical model looks like. My own background um, had really been actually in the nonprofit sector. I did a lot of work with the American Cancer Society as a child. And uh, as a teenager, I launched a, a network for teens volunteers for the American Cancer Society. And I've always been really interested in communities and the much bigger picture scale, like things like how does policy impact millions of people at a time? What are these things that we can do to reach like entire populations? And so, you know, in medicine, the idea of this kind of one by one, when you think that, okay, in a week, how many people can I touch? 40, you know, 100. Um, certainly like critically important and the foundation of our current medical system. And, and, you know, my, my father's an oncologist who does that. And I have so much deep respect and admiration for that. And yet at the same time for myself as someone who was kind of always interested in that bigger picture um, sort of thing, uh, became really fascinated because just to go back in medical school, that's the first time that people started to think about how to use technology um, from the consumer side, like things that could help if you had diabetes or high blood pressure, things like that. So it, it's right. been uh, out there for other diseases, had been very slow to get to mental health. Um, oh, okay. And so, that makes sense. So that idea of um, let's train a bunch of entrepreneurial types to handle these diseases, right, without even realizing it. I've, I, I can see that it's been right. out there. But, it's been out there. And, and it's mental yeah, health. It's, 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 yeah. It sounds so new to me. Yeah. Right. No, no, no. But I think you're right. And it's the idea is how do we think about all these new ways to address mental health, not just 
seeing like seeing therapists, and I'll throw out one statistic. What we know is that you know most people when they think about mental health, they think about therapy. If we optimize all therapists in the country to treat Americans, we would only have enough therapists to treat seven percent of the population. Oh my God, seven percent. Now the problem there is that over the course of a lifetime, fifty percent of Americans will have a diagnosable mental health disorder. So. Yeah, clear, clear, you know, imbalance there. And yeah. so we absolutely, you know, one-on-one care, traditional medicine, clinical work, tremendously important. We will never be able to solve the problem unless we think about other ways that we can reach people. And that is where technology comes in. So I've said at the beginning, meet people where they are. And to yeah. me, what was really fascinating is recognizing, okay, like if we think from a literal perspective, where are people? And back in the day, that meant like community medicine, people who would go in bands to, you know, to different communities and work with the homeless population or go, go out there to folks and reach them in, you know, in their homes. Or even the doctor with the, you know, who would knock on doors and, and, and see folks. Today, where are people? They're all online. And yeah. we all spend you know, like the number of hours, especially that like teenagers and kids and young adults spend online is really, really big. And so given that we are like kind of living our lives online and it's this whole new world that we're living in, if we can address mental health online, both thinking about it's this whole new community that we're living in, how do we keep people safe and make it a environment that's mental health friendly, as well as think about the online worlds as ways to deliver and provide mental health, you know, therapeutic services, education, that that is a tremendous opportunity to reach people in ways that, you know, is low cost scales can be, you know, and, and just gets to you. And, and in particular because of stigma, it's so hard to go out and be proactive and even figure out that I have something. I need to go find a doctor or get this information. If we can yeah. get this to people as they're already on Pinterest or TikTok or Instagram, that allows us to really have a, 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 a tremendous way of, of reaching people. And so that, that's actually exactly what we do at Stanford Brainstorm. The biggest part of it is we work with companies like uh, Pinterest and TikTok. Uh, I'll also work with organizations like the Tupac Shakur Foundation, the Kevin Love Foundation, groups like that, that are really trying to think about how do we leverage technology to reach populations and, and also through platforms like, like these online platforms. So to take it back, let's say, um, you know, you're talking with someone at Pinterest. What exactly would you be asking of them? Is that the right way to put it? That is a perfect question. So if we go back about three years, uh, we were speaking with Pinterest. And what Pinterest realized as they were looking at what people were looking for when they came to Pinterest, most people come for things like wedding planning or interior design or searching for recipes, it turned out that the fourth most common category of search terms was actually related to mental health. That was really, really surprising because it's not a place that you kind of just can think, oh, let let me go search for mental health information there, right? And they really realized, Yeah. And they really realized like, what can we do about it? Like, how can we change the whole experience people have so that it feels safe and warm and welcoming to talk about mental health online, but moreover that you get tools and resources, you know, and now we're talking about so much like fake news and misinformation. How do we actually help people get top quality information that we know comes from doctors and is evidence-based, like, you know, not like 
really the, the best types of treatments. And, and that, that's actually how the whole thing began. And so there are kind of four t- categories of things that we worked with them with. The first thing that we did was what we created, what we call microtherapeutics. And so basically what now, if you go to Pinterest and you type in, I'm stressed, or what do I do for depression? And these were some of the types of search terms that people were looking for before. I'm going to do it while I'm talking to you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, so like, go to Pinterest and type in depression, for example, or stress or anxiety. Now what happens is you get a whole pop-up and it's a separate pop-up. And importantly, it does not link to your home feed, meaning we're not tracking your um, search or anything. You know, it's, it's, it's all private uh, information. So it's very ethical in that way. Yeah. Um, and you get, you get a pop-up basically that says, you know, it looks like you're, you're maybe struggling with something. How can we help you? I just got it. Yeah. So, so I, it shows me, you know, people have their little memes and their cute little um, charts, but then there's a little thing in blue that says, if you're feeling sad or stressed, here are some resources. And then you can click, take a look and it takes you to a separate thing. Um, suicide prevention lifeline, but then these little things, two minute things you can listen to refocus your attention, accept your emotions. Oh, this is fantastic. That's exactly. So those two minute things. So it's basically a, what we call the micro therapeutics and it's a whole like toolkit of exercises based in cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy. These are the same therapies that we would use with patients one-on-one and, right. and you know, over the course of weeks or months that we would do with patients, except what we did was we translated it into a two-minute, three-minute thing exercise that you can do on Pinterest, thinking about what is the best scientific evidence tell us that you can, uh, the, the, how to take the best of these different things and what can you actually do online without a doctor in the convenience of your home, such that the minute you type in stress or depression, you can get something and actually feel a little bit better in just a few minutes. I love this. Yay! <laughs> I love this because, you know, if someone is typing in stress, depression, and they might see a quote or a meme, which is great, but you so rarely online see something pop up and interrupt you that wants to help you <laughs> rather than sell you something or, you know. No, you're absolutely right. And, and that's actually something that's really important. And I'm so like appreciative, like the, the, the CEO, Ben Silverman at Pinterest, like has the best values. When we were working with him, he said adamantly, you know, this is not something I want to have ads. This is not at all something that I want to like, you know, be related to bringing in more money. This is completely just something I want to help people. So there are no ads with this or anything. And it's complete, it's free, right? So like think yeah. about, you know, the cost of mental health care is so, so difficult. It's, this is hundred percent free. You go type, you get these resources, you can access it at any time. Um, and I, I think what's really important here is, you know, what the problem with mental health, you know, the average amount of time from first having a symptom of mental illness to seeking medical attention in the U S is 11 years. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds 11 good. years. My 11 years. Yeah. But my, mine too. Mine too. When I, when yeah, I, imagine I was waiting like, 11 years with, you know, oh, I think I am having a heart attack, you know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so having resources like this that are so easy to access and free means, you know, even if you have a little inkling, I might be depressed or anxious. If you can go and actually get some sort of help, um, that that's really important to get started. And moreover, you know, 
the way all these diseases progress is in those early stages, they're, they're small. You have mild disease early on and it gets worse as things go along. And so things like this, especially if you reach people early, can make a tremendous difference, actually. And I think that's really, really, really valuable. So, so that was one yeah. big set is just how do we get more of these things online? And that's actually what I hope all other platforms start doing as well. So, you know, you, you, you're able to get this sort of information. Um, the second big thing, though, is uh, the, the actual term for this whole thing that we created on Pinterest is called compassionate search. And the idea is how do we actually change the user experience for when you're online so that instead of feeling like something that into your point is like toxic or, you know, like the Facebook um, whistleblower who, you know, talked about eating disorders and how the more yeah. time people spend online, especially kids, we see that rates of self-harm, suicidal ideation increase, body, body uh, eating, disor eating disorders and, and body image issues get worse. How do we actually create a compassionate experience. And so in addition to providing these resources, um, the other thing we did was actually change things about the user experience. So one example is um, with autofill, like when you, you know, you're, you're searching for something, if it's something that's dangerous, like related to self-harm, it actually won't autofill in the way that if you're searching for like, you know, for me, like a navy blue velvet couch, it might autofill, but in this case it won't. And moreover, it won't push things to you. Like, you know, if you start to type something, then in your inbox, you might start to get a lot of other navy blue couches. Nothing yeah. like that would come if it's something that we think is, is concerning. Um, the third thing we did was actually work with the engineers to change the algorithms. Um, and so what they were able to do there is actually by educating them and explaining what is harmful content, the context of harmful content, for whom is it harmful, we were mm. actually able to decrease the amount of self-harm content by 88% in about six months. Wow. And context is so important too, because like a kind of side example is if you report someone on Twitter that's harassing you, unless they say these five words, it's not harassment. So it's, it sounds so exciting that you're, there is an ability to apply context to social media. You're absolutely right. And it's also very cultural too, right? You know, like the work we did, we, it was in, in English and eventually spread to, I think so far it's spread to nine other countries, but you can think that something that's bullying or harassment or, or harmful in the U S compared to in another country, there are tremendous issues there based on your age, based on your, you know, your background, based on your gender, all of those the context is really important. We'll continue the interview on the flip side of a quick message from our sponsors. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... <laughs> Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. 
Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You were telling me about a student of yours that started a company that you're very much involved with, Real, and I would love to hear more about that. Absolutely. So I, I have to say, one of my favorite students by far, <laughs> times a million. Um, so Ariella Safira. So with my lab, in addition to you know working with companies, I teach courses on how to start a company in mental health. Um, and uh, this, this is at, at Stanford teaching these courses. And the very first time I taught this course was, I guess, around five or six years ago. There was a rock star. Uh, it's, it's actually a graduate student course that's taught at the med school, and we have a lot of business school students and engineering school students and law school students. There was this rock star senior undergrad who was studying computer science and math, uh, who, whose name was Ariella Safira. And, um, and she came to the class with a really impressive background. She had been interested in mental health after one of her close friends had attempted suicide. 
Mm-hmm. And it just really, you know, tremendously moved her. And she was just really thinking not only how did this happen, but what can be done about it. And looked was really just this incredible student and someone who wanted to take in all sorts of information and learn as much about mental health as she could. So she went all across the world. Actually, she went to the UK and um, studied at uh, the what's called the, the one of the most innovative inpatient facilities uh, around mental health. She worked with IDEO trying to understand how do we redesign mental health facilities and think about what the patient care experience looks like. Um, and did so much stuff to try to understand more about mental health. And that's actually what we did in the classes, really help people understand the nuances of mental health. You know, a lot of companies out there, as well as folks who are doing anything to try to now make an impact in mental health, usually have personal experience, their own experience or the experience of a friend. And what is really important, especially from my perspective as a clinician, is understanding like the breadth of experiences. Because if you're going to create something, you really need to understand what is it like for entire populations and what are these things that come up so that when you're building, you can, you know, we, we talk about like putting the user first, not like thinking what's right for the hospital or the clinician, but how do we actually start with the patient and what the patient needs and create a solution from their perspective. And that was something that was really critical to, you know, what we teach in the course and yeah. and what uh, and exactly I think what what Ariella has done um, and uh, and so we met in the course and she graduated and uh, went on to City Block Health which is a company based out of New York that works with um, the Medicaid population uh, and and you know try, tried m- multiple things she actually thought about becoming a therapist um, and then realized that she w- didn't want to become a therapist she really wanted to change the system and that's what led to her starting real and that's where she started with with how do we actually start from scratch like what does what does system redesign look like and what do we need to offer people to really impact mental health in that way and so you know we 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 could we kind of continue this mentor mentee relationship we would talk you know talk on the phone and stuff and basically over the last three years i started off the first time she she quit her job to try to start this company she called me and said i I think i'm going to do this i was like yes you know like Uh, gunpowder i'm supporting you all the way um and and little by little you know started off as an advisor and I guess within a year, the uh, you know was was thrilled to join her as the chief medical officer of Real, um, and that's what we're doing. Is we're now we're working together as for, former professor student. Now that you know she she is my CEO and my boss now. That's and, right. Um, <laughs> which is I love it, and and that's what we're doing. We're trying we're trying to build a new therapy model, and it's been. I have to say it's been really tremendous seeing um, her grow and and how the whole company has grown. We now have over um, you know fifty employees, you know thousands and thousands of members. And what to me has been really impressive, actually, I'll say one more thing about Ariella is as we think about mental health, it's not just how do we change the system. Mm-hmm. We've actually gone a step further. It's how do we you know change the way that mental health looks, you know, across really like even more broadly than that to thinking about like, what does it look for employee? Like, what does it look like for employees? And Mm -hmm. I think that actually, especially now, as we think about COVID, the number of employers I've spoken with who are realizing my employees are really, really suffering. What do I do about it? That is one of the biggest opportunity points that we have to make change in mental health. As adults, the majority of our time we actually spend in the workplace. And that's actually something that we've done at Real is, you know, in addition to creating this product that we get out there to our members, um, we've actually looked to see how do we change the workplace and make it more mental health friendly. That starts with things like 
we have uh, one hour breaks throughout the, the, the week of just let's take a pause. We actually have what we call mental health uh, break where one week every quarter, the whole company gets off. And this is different from our PTO time off. Literally the entire Ooh, company gets it. off. And it's, it's great. Whenever I tell people that, they're like, can I start doing your company yesterday? Yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is like, we, what we know from COVID is that people didn't take vacation. And what yeah. we also know is that just like when we sleep, the importance of why sleep is so important to every human being it's important to take time off of work because it allows us to spend time with family, to rejuvenate, to master other hobbies and, you know, uh, spend time in nature and all these things that are so tremendously important for well-being. Um, what we're actually trialing now, just as it literally started two weeks ago, is we're testing out the four-day work week. This entire quarter, our whole company is trying the four-day work week, and we're gonna. We're, we, we did the data. We we took yeah. surveys before, and we're gonna take surveys after and try to really just study to see how like, has it made a difference. How how has it made a difference to to understand what are other things that we can do? Because at the end of the day, I think one of the things that's most fascinating to me about mental health is there is no one solution, right? It's not yeah. just one medication. It's not just one type of therapy. It's policy, it's economics, it's changing the workplace, it's delivering treatments like real, it's changing the way that we talk to each other, it's having a podcast called Anxiety Bites Aww. that changes the way that our society talks about and thinks about and gets to laugh about mental health. All of those, that's what leads to change. If you think about it, I mean, I know not every school system works this way, but, you know, growing up, you have the summers off and you reinvent yourself, right? And you come back a whole new person. And, you know, I think we can do that. You wouldn't need to reinvent ourselves quite as much as we do. We were still developing kids and teenagers. But I'm just I just mean, like, you get a week off, you get such perspective, right? You just feel like yourself again. And I love this as opposed to the old school. Um, we're going to take a week and we're going to go on a group trip and team build and, you know, climb trees. It's like, I don't want to spend it with people from work, like team building. And I think that is such a BS because I, honestly, if you take care of the individual, you'll probably have an easier time relating with others at work and working well with others. Like, it sounds like that your student who's now your boss is, um, is solving, is, is one person solving the problem or, you know, helping to solve the problem of only 7% of the world would be able to see a therapist. So now, like you're saying, they can get smaller doses of, of help. And it's not online therapy. It's it's all kinds of things. It's almost, you know, it's like you and I were talking about, we waited, you know, a decade to go get help. It's not even that like, oh, if only we'd gotten help sooner, but if only we'd had little things along the way to learn to cope, maybe we wouldn't have gotten into some bad habits, you know, that made our anxiety worse or whatnot. So I, this is what I love about it. That is so beautiful. I, I will record that and share that with so many people. You are absolutely <laughs> right. And, and I'll, I'll say a couple of things. One is the, the 7% statistic is actually for the US. It's much worse when we think worldwide. And even like for, I was oh, actually- good, it's worse. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's worse. Like in, in one, one example, in Ethiopia, yeah. literally the ratio of psychiatrists to people is one in a million. Oh God! Right. So, so worldwide, yeah. you know, much, much, much worse. Um, so, you know, when we, need, when we need to do more. At the same time, I think that what you said is, um, you know, you absolutely nailed it. And what we're doing at Real is thinking about, you know, when what can we offer people? Because you're, you're right. It's not when we think about behavior change. Behavior change is tremendously difficult. At the same time, it, it is all these little things, right? Like when we think about 
what we need to do to help with anxiety. The biggest things I'll tell, what I tell people, I write prescriptions often actually, not just for medication. Oh yes, I but, wanted to ask you about this. I'm so excited. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. I'll tell you what I write prescriptions for. I write prescriptions for, and, and these are the things actually that have the most scientific evidence for making an impact in anxiety across the board, whether mm-hmm. you're severe or mild or have just a little bit, or and no matter who you are, it's things like, mindfulness meditation. I'll, I'll actually give you, I'll, I'll, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you 10, my top 10, Ooh, <laughs> top 10 it. list. <laughs> That's right. Here we go. Mindful, mindfulness meditation with deep breathing, sleep, mm. gratitude, nutrition, substances, meaning alcohol, uh, drugs, you know, marijuana, uh, so CBD products, things like that. Exercise. Wait, alcohol? I'll, I'll, to decrease of substances. That's weird, doctor. Decreasing substances, d- decreasing t- tobacco use, decreasing alcohol use as, as much as possible or, or none, zero to none or, or none, none to little. <laughs> um, uh, nature, community and connection, giving and altruism, um, Sexual pleasure, actual, mm-hmm. our, actually our chief therapy officer, real Rachel Hoffman has her PhD in sex therapy, which one makes our company like the most fun company to work at, to work at and totally. like is great, you know, a water cooler conversation is fantastic. Um, but we to also know that, you know, sexual pleasure does immense things for making anxiety better. So th- those are my top 10 um, and save the best for last. <laughs> But all of those, right? All of that, nothing is new, right? None of those you're like, oh, I've never heard of that before, right? Like, but they're hard. And the simplest things are hard to do. And that's actually also why I write a prescription because what I've seen is that there's something about, you know, the patient-doctor relationship for a lot of people is very sacred. Yeah. And while we know, you know, we all know, I, I know I probably shouldn't be eating Nutella out of a jar, but... I do that at times. Is it the best thing for me? It feels like it is. It probably isn't. I, you know, yeah. I get that, right? But but at the end of the day, you know, whether it's around you know health and and exercise and nutrition or gratitude, mindfulness, taking time in nature, um, all of these things, we know it to be true. But it's still really hard to make these little changes. And yeah. at the end of the day, it actually it's not like doing these big grand gestures that makes the biggest difference. It's doing small little things. For example, like, you know, the, actually I have to tell you something. Um, I, so even for myself, when I go to the gym, um, just in the last two weeks, I've been telling myself, Hey, even if you don't have an hour, try to get on the elliptical or try to run even for 20 or 30 minutes. Yeah. I'm not doing the best workout ever, but I, but what I've, re- but you know, the consistency and having getting there every day, consistency is what leads to, you know, what your life looks like. All those little behaviors make a big difference. And the, and the, the prescriptions, actually, there are two things that I've noticed make a big difference. One is, as I said, just, it's almost like when you get it, you take it so much more seriously yeah. when it's coming as a prescription. The other thing I've noticed, I've noticed this actually specifically for women, is that I think it's almost like it gives you permission to take care of yourself. Yeah. And so for so many women, you know, there's the sense that we take care of everyone else, but not ourselves. And I, I actually um, remember- And that self-care what, can I, sound so indulgent. Like we're yes. not saying like go to a spa every day. We're just saying, you know, drink some water. 
That's, you know? You're exactly right. You're exactly right. And I think that the prescription gives them that permission for self-care. I, I remember having a patient who felt so guilty about taking time out, even like a few minutes to go for a walk. And I literally wrote this prescription, 30 minutes in nature, um, you know, three times a week. And I gave it to her and she said that she came back the next week and started crying and saying mm-hmm. that she showed it to her husband and that having that prescription, it felt like that pass that I can go do this for myself and how she noted that her anxiety got so much better by being able to be out in nature and walk her dog and everything. And so little things like that, I just think make a really big difference. And it's important for all of us to think about what are those little things. Um, it, it might seem with all these things out there, let me, let me just maybe say, say kind of one, one final way to think about it. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people, even some, you know, some of my best friends in medicine, they're like, does mindfulness really make a difference? You know, oh, and, know, and yeah. the, <laughs> the reality is, is like, you know, every day there are great scientific studies that come out and, and tell us it does. I, I think at the, at the end of the day, not everything will work for everyone, but most of these things actually will work for most of us. And so it's really important to find what works for you. You know, even when we say mindfulness and deep breathing, there are like 50 forms of mindfulness and deep breathing. It can be diaphragmatic breathing. It can be prayer. It can be, you know, just doing like guided meditation. And those are all quite different. Just like for exercise, if you're on the elliptical or growing a CrossFit or or playing soccer, those are all very different, right? So finding what works for you, um, that's really important and giving yourself that permission. Have you heard this expression? My friend is in AA and she told me this and I love it. It's um, none are too dumb for recovery, but some are too smart. Yes, I have heard that. I absolutely love that. Yes. I do gratitude lists every day and I was telling someone about it and they're like, but I don't feel grateful. I go, I don't feel anything when I make the list. I just write a list of things I'm mentally aware that I am glad I have in my life. And then now I have a notebook. So whenever I'm telling myself lies, which is how my anxiety starts, I get to look through my gratitude journal and be like, oh, wow. Like I had a friend this day that said this to me and this day I felt good about my body or whatever. I get to see proof that I actually don't believe the things I'm thinking. That's all I do it for. I think you're, you're absolutely right. And, and yeah, and I'll actually share it. One of the things that's most fascinating to me is, is, is I, I do love the science behind it. Mindfulness meditation, the, the deep breathing, what we actually know now, because people have like done the science and, and, you know, they actually can tell when we look at the basic cellular level, what we see is that when people do mindfulness and deep breathing, there literally are chemical changes at the cellular level that lead to the cell living longer. Basically, it leads to a decrease in the enzyme that breaks down the DNA of cells. And as a result of that, the cell lives longer. And as a result of that, that's why we know there's a link between doing mindfulness meditation and deep breathing and longevity and length of life. So like literally taking a few deep breaths a day leads to you living longer. Like that is mind blowing to me because exactly like you said, like sometimes I feel something, sometimes I don't, but like the actually it does cause like those chemical changes. But the thing is we don't feel chemical changes in ourselves, right? Like ever. (laughs) Well, it's, yeah, it's not having a glass of wine where you're like, oh, I feel that right away. You know, it's, it's, it's just experiential. It's over time. You look back and go, oh, I didn't make a total mess of my life this last year because I wasn't stuffing my feelings down or, you know, whatever. And that's the other thing I was going to say at the beginning is it must be so hard to diagnose people because 
anecdotally, you know, people come in and they're like, okay, so I have the worst anxiety ever and there's no test for it. And it's like, I know you think that's the symptom is like, you think, you know, you can't jump into someone else's body and feel what their anxiety feels like. But I know we all think ours is the worst, <laughs> you know? Yep. That, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And ultimately, you know, all these changes that we're trying to make, like you were saying with the gratitude journal, you might not feel it in the moment, but like when you take a medication, you don't necessarily feel that like the minute you take it, right? Mm -mm. Some of these things, it will, you, you might not notice it in the moment, but then you might reflect back in like a month and say, actually, you know, maybe I do feel a little bit better. Or it is that combination of seeing like a month's worth of gratitude that makes you feel differently. And at the end of the day, I know as someone who just always starts with the science, for me, you know, all those 10 things I mentioned, those are all, as I said, again, the most scientifically backed things that we have. When we know that all these studies show that like, oh, we've done it on thousands of people and we literally see that it absolutely makes a significant difference. That's something for me gives me a little or not a little, a lot of confidence that even if I don't feel it at the end of the day, like I know that it's doing something good and that, that helps a lot too. It's like maybe that's the faith in science component. Well, it's true. And you're always framing those things as like not science because they're not pills or, um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. But right, they're based in science. Like the success of them is based in scientific studies or else, you know, why would you recommend them? Um, so it's so true. It's like That's reframing right. it for the perfectionist or the type A, like, no, this is as sciencey as CBT. And I love looking at it that way. Anxiety Bites will be right back after a quick little message from one of our sponsors. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. 
That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so this was something I've heard you say that, you know, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with this this chemical imbalance notion, that the discovery that serotonin levels are connected to gut health. Now, how new is this discovery and what does that mean exactly? What should we do with this knowledge, us everyday people? Absolutely. Great, great question. So what we know about serotonin is it helps modulate your mood. And we were talking earlier about SSRI serotonin, psychoserotonin reuptake inhibitors, one of the most common or the most common psychiatric medication. That's what they target. Um, what's really interesting about this is there is actually more serotonin in your gut than there is in your brain. And so just to take a step back, so if you think about serotonin, basically there's serotonin in both places. It's the same molecule, but it's made from different cells. So in the brain, it's made from these neuronal cells that are called the raphate neuron versus in your gut, it's made by endocrine, immune, and gut neuron cells, but they both produce serotonin. However, they function differently in each location based on what the brain needs and what the gut needs. But at the end of the day, what's important to realize here is that what it means is that there is this connection between the brain and the gut. And people are talking about that, like mind-body or gut-brain connections, axes, things like that. And just to give you an example, like how to think about what is this connection? How does this show up? I'll give you two examples. One is that when people start taking these medications, these SSRIs, one of the first side effects they will have is actually having some nausea or gastrointestinal upset. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about how, uh, you know, the side effects may be there for a short amount of time, but don't last forever. This is actually one of the most common things because usually for a lot of people, not everyone, for a lot of people, they'll have like three or four days of this nausea, upset stomach, but then it completely goes away. Mm -hmm. And the reason we think why that happens is because as the medication, basically what the medication is trying to do is increase the amount of serotonin. What it's not able to do is just increase the serotonin in your brain because the medication, you swallow it and it works throughout your entire body. It's not sophisticated enough to just target the serotonin in your brain. 
Got it. But and so as a result, it also increases the serotonin in your gut. And because there's more serotonin in your gut than in your brain, you end up having these in, you know, changes in the serotonin levels in your gut. And so your gut's like, hey, what's going on? Something's different. And so that's why you actually feel nauseous. That's amazing. So it's it's really doing its job. It's not some side effect because it's some imperfect medication. It's actually doing its job. And it just doesn't need to do it as much in your stomach, but your stomach will get used to it. Is that basically what happens? I think that, that's, I think that's a, good, a good way to think about it, that like the, the stomach, you know, the change it's making in the stomach, it's not, for what we know now, it's not hurting or helping necessarily anything related to the gut function. What it's really, we're trying to get it to do is help those levels in the brain. Um, but the, that, that's really like what that relationship is. And, and to go a step further... Yeah. The other thing is we know that there is a huge link between gut issues, uh, diseases, even like irritable bowel syndrome, for example, is more common among people who have anxiety and depression, meaning issues and diseases that come up in the gut. There's a higher correlation when folks have you know, biological issues with, with their, with their brain, things like anxiety and depression. And so, you know, I myself talked about how I would get these, uh, you know, I'd have nausea and stuff before these, these math competitions. That's actually kind of what we, like that, that was, it's like, um, that, you know, having physical, having anxiety, but also having, you know, kind of other symptoms as well. And that's because we know that there's this gut brain axis. And so, um, studies have shown that there are certain types of gut bacteria that are associated with diseases like anxiety and depression, as well as diseases like autism and schizophrenia. And there's a lot of emerging research now that's trying to figure out exactly what this means. It, it is early. It's early research. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what's really important is what we're trying to figure out. We know that these, there are these connections. What we're then trying to figure out is, okay, based on that, how do we use that information to figure out how we can prevent disease, how we can treat disease better? It, it's a very exciting area. And I think, you know, there's more to, more to come, certainly. It's yeah. an interesting area to follow. Um, but that's why even like a lot of people talk about probiotics and why probiotics and the gut microbiome can help with your anxiety. That, that's why things like that are really interesting. So if someone has IBS, does it mean that their stomach doesn't have enough serotonin just in a very basic way? That, that, yeah, that, that's actually different. It's more that I, IBS is a separate condition that is related. When so, the likelihood if someone has anxiety, there's a higher correlation of having oh, IBS it. and anxiety. Um, so, the, the, the different different chemicals, but uh, they kind of often go hand in hand. So, if someone is not on any kind of SSRI and they don't take medication, but they have anxiety, just one of the things in their toolkit could be taking a probiotic just to have their gut health be. Opti- you know, optimize. That's exactly right. And, and I think it just, as yeah. I said, you know, I think more and more, it's a fascinating area of research. And every, every six months, I'm sure there will be something that comes out where we learn more about what we can do with our gut that will help our anxiety more and more. And I even foods, it. we know now that like there's certain foods that can increase and decrease anxiety and depression. Um, like we know that salmon is good and, and nuts are good and decreasing processed foods and sugar. Like, you know, all, all we, we're seeing so many relationships between what we ingest and our mood and anxiety. And, and similarly, we're learning more about our gut and, and the same. Lastly, I will ask you, and, and I've had very differing opinions on this podcast. Are we, as everyone keeps saying, in a mental health crisis in this country? I have heard everything from, no, it's always been there, but we just see it because of social media. Um, 
yes, everybody has some undiagnosed anxiety disorder um, that just got worse with the pandemic. And then I've heard, no, it's not a mental health issue. Not everyone has a diagnosable anxiety disorder, but it's chronic stress and we're not meant for that. We're meant for acute stress. So what's your take on what's going on currently? I mean, what is your opinion? Is this a mental health crisis we're in or is it, is it more nuanced? Yeah, I, I would say we absolutely are. And, and certainly I think it depends how, how do you define crisis or when we say that is that everyone is certain populations. But here's what I think absolutely it is. And, I'll, and here's why. First, you know, I would say that both are true. You know, both we are in a crisis and we have a chronic stress issue, or maybe it's like all of the above, right? Like, you know, it, it's answer E on the on the standardized on the standardized exam. Um, here's here's the issue. So even before COVID, we were in a crisis. And just to give you some of the statistics, one example substance use or drug overdoses were the leading cause of death for Americans 18 to 45. That has only gotten worse, despite the fact that, you know, both the Trump administration and the Biden administration have put millions and millions of dollars, if not even billions of dollars, into tackling the opioid epidemic from all sorts of perspectives. Those numbers only got worse. Okay. And so again, it was a problem before. The pandemic made it worse but it was still a problem, right? Another problem, yeah. loneliness. We were in the midst of a loneliness epidemic where everyone from elderly folks who like some who never see anyone for weeks at a time, all the way through, you know, all of to teenagers who we, we are seeing changes in the, uh, in when teenagers hit certain social milestones and their growth and development because of all the time they spend online, that their ability to make relationships and form relationships in the way that you and I did growing up, because we did not have our devices with us, you know, 24 uh, seven, yeah. that we were able to do this current generation is not able to do it in the same way. And we're seeing, seeing very real changes in the way that they form relationships and, and in their own, you know, kind of uh, growth, growth and development. Just, just two examples there, loneliness and, and uh, substance use. The suicide rates have increased and suicide rates were increasing in teenagers even before the pandemic. Since the pandemic has gotten worse, what's even more interesting and, and, and concerning is how these rates have gotten worse for those who are already most marginalized. Sorry about that. All good. All good. <laughs> I'm but, just getting an alert. Uh, oh. A wanted alert. I'm in Brooklyn. I'm getting a wanted alert for the guy that did the subway shooting. Um, a day late. I think this alert is coming in, but Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, there you go. There's a real life. I'm going to keep that in the podcast. This is a real life. <laughs> My phone just screamed yeah. at me that there's a shooter on the loose. I mean, you know, adding to our mental health crisis is this kind of stress. You're absolutely right. I'm yes. So sorry to interrupt. <laughs> that, no, but that, you know, no, but that is the example, right? No, because actually, no, that was a perfect example because to get to the point that there are all these other things going on and then something like that happens, right? And so yeah. even if you're able to get by, then you reach this threshold and you're at another level. And I think that, you know, so when I, oh, I was, I was talking right before the, before the alert um, and, and how, you know, and how, and how tragic, um, but that, you know, before the alert, yeah. um, that what's really concerning, even most concerning is as, for example, when, since the pandemic started, the levels of depression, anxiety, substance use, trauma have in some, ca some cases doubled in certain populations, even like quadrupled. And what specifically we see is that those who were already most marginalized, both because of their ability to get resources, the way that they engage with the healthcare system, those are the populations for whom the 
in rates have increased the most. So specifically in women, in the Black and Latinx populations, in um, L- the LGBTQ populations, right? And so and for one just example, we, for kids we're, or teenagers, we're seeing that suicide rates for girls increased by about 50% over the course of the pandemic. For boys, four, for, for 4%. Four versus 50%. So that what that gets at is what I mean, that's what, what what do we do about it, right? Like, yeah. and I think that's what we always need to be thinking about is there are so many things that need to get done, and so so one you know I think all of those statistics show that you know when it comes to mental health, there are a spectrum of issues, right? There is anxiety, there's depression, there's trauma, there's self harm, there's there's uh, substance use, like all of these things, and all and there's all these numbers are getting worse, and they're getting worse for the people who are already the, the most disadvantaged. That makes sense. It makes sense, right? Because it's yeah. like already things are hard and then it's hard to get help. And, and I think what all that leads to is number one, um, I want to actually sort of end on a, on a hopeful note is that number one, I think what I'd like to actually shape the conversation around is treatment. And, and let me go back one step to say that throughout the pandemic, what myself and I think all my colleagues in the field have felt like is the silver lining from the mental health perspective has been the tremendous increase in people talking about mental health. Oh, good. Absolutely. Like the improvement in stigma Mm -hmm. and the way that mental health has changed um, in terms of who's talking about it, how they're talking about it has increased so much. It's where I think it would be like five or 10 years from now. And it's everything from the news media and the number of articles and stories out there about mental health where literally now every day there's like a front page story or a big story on something related to mental health. It's, it's, it's in your world, right? The entertainment world. Um, yeah. One of my best friends is an emergency room physician, like brilliant, trained at Harvard and Stanford. And she actually works with, um, her name is Jennifer, and she has this company called Med Consults for Page, Stage and Screen. And she works with um, writers who are working on scripts and how to make them more medically accurate. And oh, you know, cool, she's an emergency yeah. room physician. Yeah, it's, it's it's really it's really really cool actually. She's an emergency room physician, and so a lot of her work, you know, in the past had been how do we you know get get this word right, or when someone is having a surgery or an accident, how do we make sure it shows up correctly? What she told me is like over the last couple of years, the number of scripts that get to her around mental health, where people want to have mental health storylines has like gone up tremendously. Um, And I think that's amazing because the more that the media is talking about this and really presenting these issues with much more like more reality based, um, it it really that that's what leads to all this culture change and gets people getting to the doctor earlier than 11 years. And, you know, that, that all of that is so important. So that's the silver lining is that stigma's gotten better. We're talking about it so much better. I think the next big step is needs to be around treatment. It's not yeah. just that we're talking about it and saying, hey, I had this too, but that all of that needs to lead to everyone seeking, how do I get better as early as possible? And that we're making it safe and supportive that parents and children, that schools, that employers are creating time for people to take a month off or to, you know, get proactive help that, that, uh, that, that they're able to, to, you know, to get and not interfere with work. All of these are really, really important. Um, and I think that what's amazing is that no matter who you are, who's listening to this podcast, there is actually probably some way based on what you're doing that you can make an impact in this. You know, if, if you're, if, and again, I'll just go back, 
like Jen, the fact that you create this podcast, how, what that does, how that changes the dialogue, how that changes who even recognizes this is an issue and that whether it means they themselves recognize earlier now that they have something and they can get help, tremendously important. Whether they realize, oh, they actually work in a field that they can maybe make some change, like they work in HR and they can change the benefits that, oh, true, that their yeah. company gives people. That is huge. That is huge. Maybe they're a teacher and they want to change the way that they talk about anxiety to their kids. That would be life changing for an yeah. entire generation, you know? So there's so many things that can be done. And, um, and I think that I like sort of end on that level of hope. At real, we say celebrate therapy. We want to celebrate the experience and champion and make you proud of the fact that you got help and that you're getting help. You just got me super pumped up. Yay! <laughs> I hope you're feeling as pumped up as I am about the future. And I'm going to get into the, our takeaways today. There's so many. I love it. I love it when a guest just downloads information into my brain. And don't forget, if you go to join-real.com, J-O-I-N-R-E-A-L.com, select join now at the top. Once you get to the paywall, you are going to select the coupon code and the promo and enter Anxiety Bites, all caps, all one word, Anxiety Bites. Again, you can just go to the show notes, follow along, and get your free month. And here are the takeaways from this episode. Now, don't forget, please send me an email, anxietybitesweekly at gmail.com. Let me know what you've learned from listening to the show. If you have any hot tips of your own that you have come up with that help your anxiety, please share it with me. I'll share it with our listeners. And if you have any questions, it could be answered on an upcoming listener email episode. So please do that. Again, anxietybitesweekly at gmail.com. Would love that. All right, let's get into the takeaways from this episode. The first thing that Dr. Vossen has on her LinkedIn bio before any credential is her 20-year history with anxiety and depression. Due to COVID, many people whose anxiety was under the radar became overwhelming or reached new heights. Many people turned to overeating and alcohol in order to self-medicate. So if this sounds like you, it's normal. Even Dr. Vossen herself did this. Dr. Vossen has accepted that she may struggle daily with anxiety, and that's okay. She's got the right tools and is making things a little bit better for herself on a daily basis. Sometimes we can have a change in our behavior due to our anxiety, even though we didn't feel any of our usual anxiety triggers that led to the change in behavior. If you're a teenager, how do you know if your super intense feelings, your anxiety is something normal because, you know, you're a teenager and you got all those hormones or if this is going to be a disorder. The first thing you need to do is distinguish how much are these feelings and sensations affecting your life? Is your sleep disturbed? Have your grades dropped? Are you having trouble focusing? Or are you able to cope and live the life you want? Or is the anxiety getting in the way? Why does anxiety even occur in some people in the first place? What's known as the biopsychosocial model in anxiety is a threefold explanation that helps to understand why it manifests in the first place and gives a framework for how to treat mental health conditions. So biopsychosocial, all one word, means that the reason for anxiety is a combination of biological, psychological, and social factors. The biological is our genetics, like did family members have anxiety? It's passed down in our DNA. The psychological means 
How do you talk to yourself? How do you cope with stressors? The social component is a mix of historical. What was your childhood like? Was your household growing up supportive? Were you bullied? And the second component to social is our environment. What's going on currently in our home life, our work life, or our relationships. The issue with mental health right now is that we don't have a way to measure, you know, say like the way you could measure other diseases using a blood test. There's no way to measure what percentage of our anxiety is biological versus psychological versus social. We can get a full history verbally from a patient and from there make some educated guesses. But with this biopsychosocial model, the old way of thinking about mental illness is over. Nothing is your fault and, and it's nothing someone did. Anxiety has a very real biological part, and it's also a manifestation of our current environment. In regards to taking medication for anxiety, it does take a bit of trial and error. For example, even with allergy medication, doctors aren't sure from the get-go what will work for patients. There is serotonin in our brain and in our gut, and a lot of antidepressant pills are what's known as SSRIs. And one of the side effects of these antidepressants can be stomach upset for the first week or two because it's affecting the serotonin level in your gut. But it should eventually subside. Again, trial and error with any kind of medication. With any mental health medication, you will feel the negative side effects before you feel the positive ones. But if you stick with it, medication can absolutely give people back their lives who need it. The social aspect of the biopsychosocial model is being taken more seriously these days as people recognize, whoops, why is my phone ringing, that this whole thing is complex. We can appreciate now how early childhood traumas or things like bullying can make a big impact later on down the line. And this gives therapists and doctors more opportunities for treatment. There are so many different types of anxiety treatments that help from an environmental perspective, from working on relationships with people, exercising, mindfulness, meditation, journaling, gratitude, and so much more. Two billion people around the world have a diagnosable mental, brain, or behavioral health disorder. But even people who don't meet all of the criteria for a mental health diagnosis may still struggle with anxiety and could absolutely benefit from some kind of treatment. If we optimized all of the therapists in the United States, we would only have enough therapists to treat 7% of the American population, despite the fact that over the course of a lifetime, 50% of Americans will have a diagnosable mental health disorder. The average amount of time from someone first having a symptom of mental illness to seeking medical attention in the United States is 11 years. Dr. Vossen's lab at Stanford Brainstorm, the Stanford Lab for Mental Health Innovation, focuses on trying to solve the mental health crisis through entrepreneurship. We won't be able to solve the problem of getting people mental health care unless we think about other ways to reach people, which is where technology comes in. Dr. Vossen's goal is to help foster entrepreneurs who find ways to address mental health online as well as think about online worlds as ways to deliver and provide mental health therapeutic services and education to reach people in ways that is low cost and just gets right to you. One example of how Brainstorm has changed things online has been working with a company like Pinterest to get their users tools and resources that comes from doctors and is evidence-based treatment for mental health known as microtherapeutics. 
Microtherapeutics is a whole toolkit of exercises based in cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, translated into two or three minute things that you can do online and actually feel a little bit better in just a few minutes. It's a compassionate experience. Dr. Vossen's former student, Ariella Safira, is now the founder and CEO of Real. And Real is a website and community that is a team of innovators, clinicians, and technologists on a mission to not just normalize mental health care, but celebrate it. They integrate empathy, creativity, and design to build a progressive mental health care experience while also improving the quality of care itself. Dr. Vossen is the chief medical officer. There is no one solution to mental health. It's not just one medication or one type of therapy. It's also policy and economics. And it's also about changing the workplace. And it's about changing the way we talk to each other. Dr. Vossen's top 10 prescriptions that she actually will write on a prescription pad for patients for treating anxiety. Mindfulness meditation with deep breathing, sleep, gratitude, nutrition, reducing substance use like alcohol, drugs, tobacco, to use as little as possible, zero to none or none to little. Exercise, nature, community and connecting, giving and altruism, and sexual pleasure. It's not about big grand gestures that help alleviate anxiety. It's doing small things and doing them regularly. And there is scientific evidence that things like journaling and getting outside actually help our brain. Studies have shown that mindfulness and deep breathing bring about chemical changes at the cellular level that lead to a cell living longer, which means that there's a link between mindfulness, meditation, and deep breathing and longevity, the length of your life. All right. And if you want to read these takeaways, you can always go to my website, jenkirkman.com, and then click Anxiety Bites. Again, that link will also be in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, anxiety bites, but you're in control. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God. We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. 
I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.